Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to the June chapter of the Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I'm here with my favorite co-host, Dr. Alex Finch. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. I'm really excited for some learning pearls today, I'll tell you that. Me too, me too. And we've had a really pretty crazy month, right? We've gotten to hang out in Las Vegas. Venk and I both gave talks at Urgent Care Updates 2023. I spoke a little bit on ECGs you can't afford to miss and syncope. Venk, what did you talk about? Yeah, I gave uh, an introduction to ultrasound-guided nerve blocks, as well as the use of ultrasound to evaluate four common abdominal pain complaints. And uh, I think it went really well. It was it was pretty exciting. We didn't get to go to SAEM, though, but many of our colleagues did, right? We did. It was uh, it was definitely a big conference this year, and we're really proud as a department. We had 22 abstracts presented, and so huge shout out to the entire Department of Emergency Medicine here. And there were so many faculty who gave didactic presentations as well. But that's May, and we're talking about June now, right? It is. June's special for a few different reasons, and and I want to highlight in particular Gun Violence Awareness Month. Just in May alone, there were 74 incidents in the United States where multiple people were shot and either injured or killed. I didn't realize that. Did you know that? I had no idea. And that means that if you spread that evenly across the country, I know it wasn't spread like that, but that means each state in the month of May alone would have had one instance and some half of the states would have had two instances. And this is not intended to be a political statement, but awareness of a public health problem, just like we would talk about any other public health problem. I won't pretend to know the solutions myself, but and I'm encouraging everyone to please keep an open mind, think and advocate for solutions separated from our biases and self-interest other than our, our shared goal for pure health and welfare of our community. Now, it's also to set the tone in a different direction, a little more upbeat. A lot of people are celebrating, right? Lots of celebrations this month. First of all, congratulations to all of our medical students pursuing your dreams and going on to residency. Welcome all of you, class of 2023 medical students from the country and around the world. Welcome as colleagues. Before we move on to the main part of the show, which I'm really excited about, don't forget, like, follow, and comment on our show on whatever podcasting platform you use. And please also tell your friends and colleagues to check us out. Shall we get on to it, Alex? Let's do it. All right. Well, we are incredibly honored to have Dr. Mark Manenbach as our expert for today. He is newly emeritus faculty of our pediatric emergency department. I can say that personally, he is the most skilled pediatric emergency physician that I have ever met. He truly is an artist in the way that he can assess, calm, and care for sick children. He has similarly been recognized many times over for his teaching and his clinical care. He has received outstanding teaching awards from the medical students of Medical College of Wisconsin, where he trained and worked for a while, as well as here at Mayo Clinic multiple times over. Outstanding teaching awards from the residents, both at Medical College of Wisconsin and at Mayo, again, multiple times over, and has been recognized for his clinical care by receiving the prestigious Distinguished Emergency Medicine Clinician Award from Mayo Clinic in 2016. 
He has served as an assistant residency director, chair of education, chair for faculty development, chair of the Division of Pediatric and Adolescent Emergency Medicine, and several other departmental and institutional roles. It's always a privilege to learn from you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Frank. Thanks for those kind words, and um, I hope I can live up to the billing. I'm not sure. You always uh, do. Well, thanks again. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So this month we're going to talk about pediatric DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, right, Alex? We are indeed. Now, Dr. Manenbach, I've practiced in a couple of different environments, and I've seen this, and it feels different than when I see an adult DKA patient for some reason. I think there's an urgency, and this speaks to the truth that you taught me when I was a resident, that peds aren't just small adults. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in DKA? Because you've presented nationally on this topic. Well, first of all, just to also remember, Alex, that many adult is just a big kid. <laughs> so Absolutely. We, we have to keep that in mind, uh, including myself. I'm not excluding myself. No, I, uh, I, I think a lot of my teaching points or my pearls are based on challenges that I've come across myself. So making that diagnosis of nuance diabetes and or DKA in a child may take several visits before for a firm diagnosis is made. The primary care provider, the urgent care clinic, the emergency department, you, you might not have it high on your list of differential kind of things. Children can't tell us a lot of the same symptoms that adults can, or in the same way we might ask of an adult patient who comes in where it might become more clear. But these children and include adolescents, right? So are they adults, are they kids? They may present in a delayed fashion, kind of hoping things will get better. Uh, I remember many uh, teenager who went off to college. They came home from a Christmas break or a spring break or at the end of the semester, and their parents looked at them and realized, wow, you've lost a lot of weight. You don't look so good. We should make an appointment for you. And then until that appointment can happen, you know, the diagnosis maybe is, again, delayed further, and they actually slip into DKA. Um, so I think there are a lot of variables there that make it different between kids and adults. Drawing on your, your career's worth of experience, if you had to paint an illness script of a case of a, a younger child coming in with DKA, how would you describe that, including some of the, the challenges you described of, of maybe multiple visits? Well, I think we anchor to viral illness many times in kids, and 90% of the time, 95% of the time, we're right. Uh, it is a viral illness. So I might be a broken record, uh, guys, but, uh, you know, the kid with isolated vomiting, I always have said, makes me nervous, uh, makes the hairs in the back of my neck. Not many hairs left. I'm losing those, but makes those stand up because the possibilities are just huge from DKA to appendicitis in the kiddo under age five to unrecognized head trauma to I, you know, a variety of different things. And so the nonspecific symptoms are really what kind of should kind of make you pause and think, um, what else could this be rather than just here's some Zofran oral rehydrate and go home kind of thing. That is a, a classic teaching point that you gave me early on when I would describe, here's a patient with vomiting alone with gastroenteritis, and you'd say, where's the enteritis? We're all hoping for a little bit of diarrhea while they're here. When you, when you see a patient come in with vomiting alone, and this is now their third visit, what's pushing you 
towards a, an illness script that's describing more of a metabolic derangement? Well, I think paying very close attention to their mental status and to their vital signs are things that strike me. I, not to make light of it, vital signs are vital, but are we paying attention to those vital signs? Is the child more tachyptic than we realize and they're not febrile? Are they more tachycardic than they appear? They're quiet, they're calm in their mother and father's arms, but yet their heart rate is, you know, two standard deviations above the norm. They look uh, relaxed. They look, they, look, they look very comfortable, don't they? Uh, but actually, so the tachypnea is a sign of the, you know, uh, acidosis. The tachycardia is because of their hydration status and the acidosis. Uh, and so the lack of fever, the lack of any, you know, report of an injury in that vomiting child should start to... I think, make people look a little bit further. Now, certainly, vomiting alone could be one that any of us could miss if we're not paying attention. But let's review what is a typical in-your-face diabetes or DK presentation. Sure, sure. And again, one of the things we may not ask about, or we might be falsely reassured. I remember seeing an infant. The youngest child I've diagnosed with DK was a nine-month-old. And I didn't get the diagnosis right away. And I was falsely reassured because hydration, do we do IV fluids, do we do oral rehydration, do we have to poke this kid, put him through all these things. I remember vividly asking the father, is she wetting her diapers? She's wetting her diapers? Great. So reassurance mm, shouldn't have been because actually that's polyuria. So do you ask parents, do you ask caregivers about polyuria? Do you ask them about family history? Uh, of uh, diabetes or uh, autoimmune type things like thyroid disease that might make you more likely to think about DKA or diabetes. Have they recently had an illness and recovered from it? You know, knowing that influenza and COVID are thought to be factors in the triggering of onset of diabetes and therefore DKA uh, a couple weeks beforehand. Uh, you can certainly find that as well. So family history factors, recent illness, why are they sick yet again in a fairly short period of time? Then asking about weight loss, look at their growth curve, ask about the polyuria, ask about um, uh, change in you know, mental status. And again, along with that polyuria, you know, if they were potty trained before, so secondary enuresis. Now they're wetting the bed again. Well, that, that has to be thought of, well, is there an organic reason for that? One of the more common being, again, diabetes. Yeah. That makes sense. I, full disclosure, I do not use the growth curve in my practice, but I should. I completely agree. To me, in a way, it's kind of a vital sign. Don't forget the teenagers as well. Uh, you see that depressed teenager, that mental status change teenager, Oh, maybe they got into a drug we can't test for. Uh, what's happened with their weight over time? If you pull up the growth curve, I actually, when I was practicing, I had the growth curve tab at the top, one of my preferences. And it became one of my routines to click on that tab and at least look at their weight over time. Another podcast maybe about head circumference and why that's important. That doesn't really necessarily apply here. But again, having that access, kind of another pearl, if you will, a, a way to catch these kids earlier is to look at their growth curve. So let's say I've got this on my differential. What am I going to use to make the diagnosis of new diabetes versus DKA? Yeah, good question. You know, and again, each institution, I think, changes their definition a bit, their metrics, their parameters. And ours get, I think ours have gotten tweaked several times over my career. 
um, no, it's not diabetes anymore, or yes, it is DKA, or you got to draw your line somewhere. So I think if you're, you're in the 250, 300 range for a glucose, if they're show evidence of acidosis, in our case, we use a pH of 725. If you don't have pHs as part of your routine labs, looking at the bicarb of being 15 or under, and then some indication of ketones. So you have hyperglycemia, you have evidence of acidosis, and in terms of presence of ketones, a urine dipstick with moderate to large ketones present, and or if you can measure something like beta-hydroxybutyrate, we use a cutoff of 3.8 millimoles per deciliter for, for that designation. So if you meet those three criteria, then we would say you're in DKA, and depending on how far off of those numbers you are would kind of give you an idea about severity of DKA as well. I'm going to jump in briefly with a little more detail on the ketone situation. It's important to remember that beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate are the two ketones generally produced in DKA situations. With that said, they're not produced equally. Beta-hydroxybutyrate outnumbers the production of acetoacetate on an order of magnitude of about 10. So beta-hydroxybutyrate would be the optimal test if you have the option of testing for all of them. Urine ketones, which is often available, it's, re- it's much cheaper and probably more ubiquitous in terms of availability, it tests primarily for acetoacetate. And so in a situation where the clinical situation is very strongly suggestive of DKA, a negative urine ketone result may be a false negative result or underappreciating the severity of ketosis. The third ketone or acetone is generally not associated with DKA and would not be something you would want to test for. So again, beta-hydroxybutyrate outnumbers the production of acetoacetate by a magnitude of 10 essentially in DKA states and would be the preferential test, though urine ketones, which test for acetoacetate, could also be used. Another thing to keep in mind is that certain drugs like SGLT2 inhibitors can promote the reabsorption of ketones within the urine, which can, again, increase the likelihood of false negative results when you're testing for urine ketones, again, making beta-hydroxybutyrate the preferential test when available. Okay, let's get back in there. Before we continue down this pathway, let's talk about the gray zone of almost there, how you would approach someone like that. Maybe there's some hyperglycemia, but no ketones yet, or mild ketones in the urine in a shop where you don't have access to a beta-hydroxybutyrate. How would you approach those patients? It's a great question. Again, it raises the differential, I think, uh, to be broadened. So, you know, hyperglycemia could be a stress response. Some people have used it as a marker for head trauma severity, and so that might kind of make you wonder, is this DK? Isn't it? What else am I missing? But I think one of the uh, one of the things that might push you over the edge, again, is getting that history. Does it quite fit the polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss? Again, put it into context. And if you're not sure, you can do some more confirmatory tests. I mentioned the beta-hydroxybutyrate might help. Uh, a glycosylated hemoglobin level, uh, hemoglobin A1c, might help if you can get turnaround on that in your institution, that might help you as well. And then, you know, phoning a friend. I, uh, especially for the kids that are known diabetics, but the initial one as well, I, I might bend the ear of a PEDS endocrinologist. Maybe you don't have that immediately available to you, but running it by someone to have that conversation. Hey, what about this? Could this be? And they might have some other direction or advice for you. You have to be careful. You don't want to anchor too much into that. Certainly plenty of cases of acidosis, hyperglycemia. There could be a different metabolic disorder 
not diabetes. It could be, again, a stress response. You don't want to miss things uh, and anchor to that as well. So the P's endocrinologist might be there to say, you know, this doesn't seem to quite fit diabetes. I understand why you're concerned, but, or the reverse. Yes, I think this is just early diabetes. Let's make arrangements for follow-up. Can we do these other tests and go from there? And speaking of other tests, let's say we've we've done a point-of-care blood sugar and we saw it was higher than we expected. And then we've progressed and gotten some other labs and feel that we are almost or at a diagnosis of DK. Are there other tests we need to do? You mentioned viral illnesses and things like that. Do, do all these patients need a chest x-ray and a urine? What, what, how do you approach additional testing? That's a great question as well. So some people wonder what's, what's the trigger? What's the thing that pushed them over the edge to go into DKA? I think most importantly is a good thorough exam. Again, I'm sorry I sound like a broken record to those that were residents with me, but you know that funny odor to their breath might not be because of producing ketone bodies and leading to that obvious odor. Um, it could be strep throat. So maybe that's the funny smell to the breath. Look at their pharynx, right? Maybe you need to do a strep test. Uh, their tachypnea, again, again, is probably because of acidosis, not necessarily because of pneumonia, but if they're febrile as well, and they have respiratory symptoms, that's probably the time they need a chest x-ray. But without fever, with normal SATs, with only rapid breathing, I, I don't know that a chest x-ray is routinely required uh, to look for that. If you're looking for you know, associated bacterial infection that might have triggered them, studies have said that in kids at least, uh, maybe 18%, 20% of kids have some type of identified bacterial trigger that is part of all of this. So it's not very common. That's interesting. That's less than I would have thought. Yeah. It, yeah. For some reason, it feels like I'm trained to look for a trigger and I'm kind of digging, even in adults, you know, you're considering acute coronary syndrome, all the, all those kind of things. What, what types of things could have prompted it? And so that's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought it was 18%, but that's, that's still a lot. Got to, what I hear you saying is, Alex, do a history and physical. I feel like many of our guests point at you and tell you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, Alex, you're very good at that. So I, I think you've got the message uh, and, and you practice that way, which I appreciate. Venk here, cutting in after the interview. We do have a practice guideline in the Rochester campus emergency department that outlines some of the testing that is recommended for patients with pediatric DKA. I thought this would be this would be a good time to review the guideline because we're going to reference it throughout this interview. And those of you who work at Mayo Clinic might need the review. Those who don't might find it helpful if you're wondering what we do or what is recommended in our practice. So I will buzz through this, but feel free to fast forward if this doesn't interest you. So our practice guideline is for pediatric DKA workup and management in the emergency department. And it begins with a couple cautionary things. It reviews the common symptoms, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, weight loss, vomiting, etc., that we've been talking about and that you can look up elsewhere. Then it, there's a caution that in patients who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, dehydration can be a challenging thing to determine. And it's recommended that we use objective measures such as weight loss to make dis clinical decisions on these patients. And I thought that was a useful piece of information. If patients have a known diagnosis of diabetes, uh, there's a reminder that we should take 
attention in our history taking to what is their insulin regimen, their route of administration, sites of administration, what have their blood sugars been recently, presence or absence of ketones if it has been checked before, uh, and other things that I think we would commonly do, but just in case that's not part of your your practice, uh, I bring it up. And then in terms of big picture categories in the physical examination, it recommends Of course, again, monitoring the weight, vital signs, hydration status, perfusion, mental status, respiratory status, and a particular attention to looking for signs of infection as a common trigger. In terms of the diagnosis, the guideline outlines what Mark mentioned, the serum or bedside glucose over 250 milligrams per deciliter and a venous pH of under 7.25 or bicarbonate under 15 millimoles per liter and beta-hydroxybutyrate greater than 3.8 or moderate to large ketonuria. So again, those three categories of the sugar, acidosis, and ketones making the diagnosis. Then it goes on to separate out treatment and management in the first hour and then second hour and beyond. The first hour, there's an emphasis initially, of course, on obtaining the proper monitoring of heart and lungs, getting appropriate IV access. If the patient is on an insulin pump, making sure to stop that. And then here's where it recommends tests. Draw blood for serum glucose, electrolytes, calcium, phosphorus, a CBC with differential, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and lactate. Hemoglobin A1c also is a potential consideration. And there is an emphasis that if infection is suspected, consideration of blood, urine, and throat cultures would be potentially helpful. In that first hour, The focus is really on fluid resuscitation. If the patient appears normotensive, administration of 10 cc's per kilogram of 0.9 normal saline over one hour, giving no more than 40 cc's per kilogram of IV fluids over the first four hours is also a sub-comment there. If the patient is hypotensive, administration of 20 cc's per kilogram of 0.9 normal saline over 15 minutes and reassessment of hydration status will guide future fluid therapy. The second hour, there's a discussion of repeating blood sugar and electrolytes, particularly focusing on point-of-care testing if it's available, and assessment for the presence of cerebral edema because uh, of its life-threatening nature. Dr. Finch is going to go over some of the criteria for cerebral edema, so I will skip that. And this is the time when insulin infusion therapy is is discussed in this guideline. If we cannot get repeat blood sugars every hour, uh, we should hold off on initiation of insulin or discuss with the pediatric critical care service. But assuming we can get repeat blood sugars, and this is after the fluid uh, fluid administration has been completed, if that repeat blood sugar is over 300 milligrams per deciliter, start regular insulin IV at the following rates depending upon age. For children under 24 months of age, start insulin infusion at 0.05 units per kilogram per hour. For children over 24 months of age, start insulin infusion at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. If that repeat blood sugar is under 300 milligrams per deciliter and bicarbonate is under 15 millimoles per liter, start the insulin infusion the same way. If the patient's blood sugar is under 300 milligrams per deciliter and the bicarbonate is over 15 millimoles per liter, consult with on-call pediatric endocrinology service. Subsequent IV fluid therapy, given that this is the second hour, evaluate 
repeat serum potassium level, and if the potassium is over 5 millimoles per liter, continue 0.9 normal saline at 1.5 times maintenance. If the potassium is under 5 millimoles per liter, administer half normal saline with 20 milliequivalents per liter potassium phosphate and 20 milliequivalents per liter potassium acetate at one and a half times maintenance fluid rate. If the blood sugar is under 300 milligrams per deciliter, provide D10 in the IV fluid therapy. And if the blood glucose is over 300 milligrams per deciliter, do not add dextrose to the IV fluid therapy. Now here the guideline goes on to talk about who needs admission. All patients newly diagnosed with diabetes mellitus with or without DKA require an inpatient admission and consultation with pediatric endocrinology. All patients diagnosed with DKA with the following risk factors for cerebral edema are to be admitted to a pediatric intensive care unit setting. These criteria are age under 24 months of age, developmental delay, GCS under 15 after fluid therapy is completed, multi-organ system dysfunction, initial pH under 7.15, bicarbonate under 5 millimoles per liter, initial PCO2 under 30, BUN over 30, supplemental bicarbonate therapy has been given, corrected serum sodium under 140 millimoles per liter or a falling serum sodium after two hours of therapy, calculated serum osmolality greater than 350 millimoles per kilogram, and a patient who has received more than 40 cc's per kilogram of IV fluid therapy. If the appropriate level of care cannot be achieved, transfer to another institution is strongly recommended, utilizing a skilled transport team to get them there. Admission to the pediatric ICU should be strongly considered for all children on an insulin infusion, children under the age of 5 years, children with initial bicarbonate less than 10, and then please note that Mayo-Rochester practice, all children on insulin infusion require admission to the pediatric ICU. All right, that's a quick overview of the guideline. We're going to jump back into the interview now. But again, remember, you also can have more than one diagnosis here. So I remember working with many a resident or my own assessment thinking, this, this child has so much abdominal pain. Is this appendicitis? Uh, and it is that, really that, hard. And, and so which came first kind of thing. And I, one message I would say is you might need to look for that, but it's probably no one's going to take them to the operating room if they're in out-of-control DKA, mm. even with appendicitis. So treat them see if they respond, see if they get better, and if their exam improves. It's kind of like treating their pain, if you will. Treat it appropriately, treat the DKA, and if it gets better, the abdominal pain resolves. Then it was the DKA that led to the abdominal pain. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to go down that road of evaluating for appendicitis, but you may need to. So again, repeated exams, initial exams, and repeat exams, I think, really important uh, while they're with you. Yeah. Now, I, I like to take a step back and r- make sure I understand what's happening. So I was trying to read about how DKA occurs. Can I go over what I read, make sure it's accurate? Please, yeah. So the hyperglycemia is coming because the glucose can't be broken down, as well as a promotion of gluconeogenesis because of decreased muscle and fat ability to utilize the glucose. And that hyperglycemia is then, as I understand it, causing an osmotic diuresis and leading to dehydration which is partially contributing to acidosis. The other piece of the acidosis seems to be coming from the ketone generation from the liver as well, and namely acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that's creating this cycle of worsened acidosis, more loss of compensation, and then worsening symptoms 
Is that right? I, I think you've summarized it very well. It's, it's, a, it's a roller coaster that's a bit out of control, right? It just, it just keeps going. Mark, along my journey as your student, there were a few things in particular that I've learned. And the way you educate parents in these complicated situations is exemplary. So I'd love to hear, if you don't mind, let's say you've made the diagnosis of diabetes. It's a new diagnosis, but they don't have DKA. What are you telling the parents? This is one of the diagnoses that it's, it's really tough to share with parents. Uh, you don't know what, where any parent is coming from. You don't know what their experience is. You don't know what they're thinking about. But if you say your child has diabetes to a parent, they might be thinking worst case scenario. You know, they're thinking about kidney transplant, loss of vision. Uh, they're, they're thinking about early heart disease. Uh, they're thinking about all those things in that moment. And they have all these questions that are going through their mind. The other difficult part for me is knowing that uh, although diabetes care in kids has come a long way towards making their life very reasonable, avoiding those complications, uh, there really is no cure for this. And to, to share that with a family is, is very challenging because we want to fix it. Uh, we in emergency medicine and acute care, we, we want to make it all better. And we will make it better, but we won't make it go away. So they often, I think, go through many different, they have many different reactions. They go through many different types of thinking. And they're hoping I'm wrong when I say I think this is diabetes. And I'm pretty certain that it is based on the numbers that we've discussed uh, when I have them in hand. And it's not anything else. um, And we're treating appropriately. But I think they're still holding out hope that maybe it's something else. So it, I, I think it's worthwhile to sit down with them, have members of your team with you, have a member of the nursing staff there. Uh, if, if you do have learners with you, bring them alongside of you to either learn by observation, to maybe lead the discussion with your guidance and direction as a staff doc, and just walk them through this about their questions because they're gonna have a lot of questions. Um, and those might become more urgent. What about the birthday party that's coming up next weekend? That means they can't have any more sugar. Like, well, now let's, let's worry about today, but they move on. And I, I think we need to address all those questions um, and reassure them as best we can to say, we're gonna take good care of your child. We're gonna get them the care that they really need to really thrive here. Um, talking up your other team members like the PEDS endocrinologists, the PEDS ICU docs that most likely they'll be uh, encountering here next. Um, so I, I think it can go a long way yeah, to just take your time, pause, as busy as you are, sit down and, and just really listen to what they have to say and answer their questions as best you can. Hey everyone, it's Alex jumping in after the interview. Dr. Manenbach shared a series of important publications on the topic of pediatric DK with us, and we wanted to punctuate our interview with these important publications. Andreas New and colleagues published Ketoacidosis at Diabetes Onset is Still Frequent in Children and Adolescents in Diabetes Care in 2009. This looked at more than 14,000 patients with type 1 diabetes between 1995 and 2007. Overall, they found that DKA was observed in 21.1% of patients at disease onset, and the frequency of DKA didn't change over the study period. 
The highest frequency of DK was found in children less than or equal to five years of age. To me, this is a really important paper in that it shows us that we have to remain vigilant for this disease. And as Dr. Manenbach is highlighting here, it is actually pretty common that we may be making a lifelong diagnosis in the context of this acute illness. And so we need to be prepared, practiced, and thoughtful in our family discussions. I completely agree with you, Alex, and I'm glad that you took the time to summarize that paper, as I also thought that was really impactful. I spent some time after our interview talking to others in pediatrics and emergency medicine about common questions or frameworks they have for educating families and patients about diabetes, whether it's a new diagnosis or a diagnosis that you think your patient doesn't fully understand. And some of the big picture themes that were echoed over and over were explain the diagnosis, discuss the type of diabetes, clarifying between type 1 and type 2, and what's happening in those conditions. What are the symptoms and signs that people need to be worried about? Polyuria, polydipsia, the weight loss, fatigue, vomiting. Also, discuss the treatment plans if there are some that have already been laid out, and what does that involve in terms of blood glucose monitoring and then insulin administration. And then, as Mark mentioned, meal planning is a common area of questions that people may have, and any insight you can give them would be very helpful and valued. Physical activity, there may be some questions about highlighting the benefits of regular physical activity and what that could do to people's blood sugars. That might be more for people who have an existing diagnosis of diabetes and are wondering how they can be more on top of it. And then the other area that you should be ready to talk to people about is how to manage hypoglycemia. And not just that fast-acting sugars like fruit juices and things are helpful, but also how do you correct more long-term things so that people don't have recurrent hypoglycemic episodes by giving you know, complex carbohydrates as well as fats and proteins like a dairy sandwich after the person wakes up um, after you've given them the fruit juice. And then lastly, significant emotional support for the patient and any of the family members that are living it with, with them as well. All right, back to the interview. So what I'm hearing is that we need to convey the importance of this new diagnosis manage the impulse that they're they're having in the moment to think about all the terrible things that could happen down the road and reframe in the very near future, talk up the future colleagues are going to see that are going to help them through this path. Right. I always reflect, um, now that I'm at this point in my life, like how much do people really hear of what I say? Alex has heard a few things. Thanks, Alex. You're reassuring. <laughs> but how many how many families hear what we have to say? what we think is going on or discharge instructions. You know, some studies I think have said 50% they actually hang on to. So I also follow up and say, you might not remember my name, right? But I really encourage you to write down your questions. If you've got a significant other, mother, father kind of relationship, ask them to ask the same questions so that you're all literally, truly on the same page in terms of understanding. because a lot of questions are going to come up and you're not going to remember exactly the answer. Someone answers it a little bit differently. And so then they think, I don't have this figured out yet at all. So I, I, I think really encouraging questions from families goes a long way. And when we consider educating our community, I think your message is not, they won't remember it, so let's not spend the time in the room. Your message is spend more time in the room. Give them a chance to ask questions repeat things over so that they they take it away because um, 
because that is a, a valuable time that you have to educate everyone, the patient included. How would that message change if the patient does have DKA and it's also a new diagnosis? I think, you know, you have to get them through the next step. You know, that's what we do in acute care is the most immediate thing is we need to, you know, get some handle on these numbers. That's why you're going to the pediatric intensive care unit, or that's why we're transferring you out from our community emergency department where there is a pediatric subspecialty group and care uh, level uh, that that meets the needs of the patient so I, I think those that's the initial framework you have to wrap wrap the parents head around this is what we need to take care of first and get over that hump if you will and the other things will follow suit after that mm -hmm. along those lines what is your philosophy to that first hour I like to fix things there's a lot of things I can fix really quickly and I, I'd like to see those numbers get better fast we want all those numbers uh, just perfect, right? We want them in this range. Absolutely. When I was a resident, uh, this is a long time ago now, uh, there was a term we called euboxic, uh, meaning that the, the lab values would be printed, and if the, if the result was in a box that was outside of the parentheses, the child was not euboxing. <laughs> so we wanted them all to be in the same parentheses. Just your eye would scan down. Everything's normal. And if you'd see any outlier, you had to fix it. Um, now, some, some parents are like that, too. Anything outside the norm, if their MCV is off, they're like, what does that mean? Uh, if their platelet count is 1,000 less than normal, what does that mean? Um, so, again, there's, there's euboxic and then there's euboxic. But anyhow, sorry, I digress. Uh, we want to fix it. We fix numbers. It's, we, we, we're, we're prone to, to, to get tests and to react to them. I think one thing I would always say is, these kids probably didn't get there quickly. It probably took them several weeks for all these numbers to be deranged, to be way off. You're not gonna fix them in your shift, most likely. We'll talk about maybe some, some exceptions to that where you do need to inter, you know, intervene more acutely or not, but really kind of resist the idea that you're gonna fix these numbers and make them all better, yeah. Because that, that's, that potentially does harm. Well, earlier you kind of gave a prelude to the details that we're going to talk about fluids, we're going to talk about electrolytes, we're going to talk about insulin. And so if we break that down, fluids, what is your strategy or recommended strategy in the emergency department for fluid management of these kids? You know, if they're not hypotensive, if they're not truly shocky, I think slow and steady is the way I would go. I think you typically would start in 10 cc per kilogram increments, which means you need to know the kiddo's weight, by the way. We won't go into weight estimation <laughs> here today. Okay, another one of Manabox, kind of little pearls or pokes, I don't know which way you want to call it, but um, 10 cc's per kilo is typically where we would start. You'll hear varying opinions about normal saline versus lactated ringers. Some people are in each of the camps and are quite opinionated about one being better than the other. I, I, I think it depends on where you work and the, the most recent guideline that you have, but something isotonic, something that's gonna stay in the intervascular space as much as possible. Any change that you make, especially in the really young kiddo with diabetes, giving them fluids will potentially drop their blood glucose more than you would like. 
So they might come in with a sugar over 500, you give them 10 cc's per kilo of fluid, and suddenly their sugar is 350. And you're like, whoa, now what happens if I start insulin? And again, as I mentioned earlier, suddenly you're dealing with giving supplemental dextrose, which just, you're chasing your tail. And uh, you create a lot of different distractions, I think, along the way. So that's where I would start, unless they're hypotensive. Okay, and so you're saying, don't initiate the insulin at the same time. Give the fluids and then reassess. I, I, I think that's, that's very, very true. The younger the child, the more sensitive they are to that. The child with known diabetes, again, the, the, they've received some teaching guidelines to give extra supplemental insulin at home. And so they might be in DKA with a fairly normal glucose. And if you continue to give or start an insulin infusion or give a bolus of insulin, suddenly they're, you know, seriously hypoglycemic and at risk for seizures, and now you're dealing with that. And so I think you need to take each child as they come individually and customize that to, to what they need uh, along the way. I've heard of euglycemic DKA. Is that what that's referring to? That's, that's my experience is that it's, it's typically a known diabetic who has gone into acidosis we kind of fix their sugar, or the parents, the caregivers at home, fix the sugar part without reversing the acidosis. Insulin, I think, is important to continue to reverse that acidosis, but if they come in relatively low, the decision about how much insulin to give them, infusion, sub-Q injections, or rate of infusion uh, would be dependent upon where they are with uh, the overall picture. Hey everyone, it's Alex jumping in after the interview. Vank and Mark are doing a great review of euglycemic DKA here, and I want to expand on the topic briefly because it's something we have encountered in our practice here in Rochester and we want you to be vigilant for. Britt Long and colleagues did a very nice review of this topic in their paper in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine entitled Euglycemic DKA, Etiologies, Evaluation, and Management from 2021. And I'd really encourage you to pick up that paper and read it to become more of an expert. Their paper defines the condition by a relative euglycemia, think a serum glucose less than 250 milligrams per deciliter with an associated acidosis and ketosis. Although the conditions associated with euglycemic decay are numerous and can include anorexia, gastroparesis, intoxication, ketogenic diet, pregnancy, and as we're describing here, self-treatment with insulin for DKA prior to presentation. A big contributor to euglycemic DKA would be sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors in our diabetic patients. This has been found to increase the risk of euglycemic DKA by a factor of 7. These drugs are often called Glyphlozins, or flozins for short, because of their shared ending of their name, which is a quick clue to what might be going on with your patient. The mechanism of this isn't completely understood, but the use of SGLT2 inhibitors can be associated with reduced insulin secretion as well as glucagon release leading to ketogenesis. SGLT2 inhibitors act on the proximal renal tubule to increase excretion of glucose leading to lower blood glucose compared with standard DKA. Conversely, they also can cause decreased ketone excretion. Something I found really powerful in this paper was the description that almost half of patients with this condition have a delay in diagnosis 
because of the lower than normal serum glucose that we often see in DKA. Otherwise, the workup is similar to normal DKA, and the American College of Endocrinology recommends a serum pH and a serum beta-hydroxybutyrate if you can get it. Treatment is similar with IV hydration as well as insulin and dextrose after checking a potassium. Please check out Dr. Long's wonderful paper to review the topic and stay vigilant while you're reviewing DKA. And hand-in-hand hand with the fluids have to be the electrolytes, I would assume. So take me through how you approach electrolyte management. Well, I think, um, uh, I think most importantly is understanding that they are potassium depleted. Again, reacting to those numbers, Alex, that you mentioned earlier, all the numbers are off. Their potassium may be, you know, 6.3. Looks uh, high. Yeah, so it's high, right? It's, it's not in the box range that we like. But you have to think, why is it high? Well, it's because of their acidosis. It isn't truly hyperkalemia. They are potassium deficient for the most part. If they do not have evidence of an arrhythmia, along with that hyperkalemia number that you're getting back, please don't react and treat as if it's hyper, hyperkalemia. Because how do you treat that? Insulin, insulin. D50, yeah. high dose, albuterol. There's a, a lot of things I could do. Right. Re again, I could get that number down real fast. You could. You could. But it probably isn't going to help this patient. Their treatment for their hyperkalemia is fluid replacement, insulin, which we'll talk a little bit more about, and then also giving them potassium. But if you give them that insulin, that glucose, all those kinds of things, the dextrose and, and, and insulin, you're gonna be again chasing your tail. Suddenly you've got this normalized glucose but persistent acidosis again. Now what do you do? Uh, so slow and steady moving forward. So after initial isotonic fluids reassessment, uh, they might need more fluids. Uh, many children are estimated to be 10% dehydrated routinely if they present in DKA, but they will need some potassium replacement. So monitoring that potassium and sequential lab tests really important because at some point as you correct the acidosis with the fluids with the insulin they're going to tip over and they be, become hypokalemic and again then you're chasing your tail so you need to be ready to figure out how you're going to give them that potassium replacement and not lower their potassium if you will yeah so mark a colleague of mine recently brought something to my attention that i was not aware of and they called it a two-bag technique for resuscitation in their institution, they were talking about one bag being potassium phosphorus and the other one being sodium phosphorus. And they simultaneously are infusing from both bags, but at different rates based on their lab tests. Have you ever heard of this? And what's your take on that? Sure. And again, a two-bag technique, depending on your institution, might address a lot of different issues. The specifics that you talked about, KFOS and or K-acetate is many times what's involved too. That's a way to create some buffer with the acetate and also allow for potassium replacement more slowly. It avoids the need for potassium boluses, which in pediatrics, in my experience, when I talk with my pediatric ER colleagues here, the use of a potassium bolus or a K-rider kind of approach has led to some real serious complications uh, in kids. Uh, it might be a calculation, it might be a delivery issue, but we've all had experiences where we have heard of or been involved in when children get too much potassium at one time. This is a way to give slow, steady potassium replacement in a safe way. So they might alter their rates of things depending on what labs are 
uh, how they're progressing over time uh, to address the deficiencies without going overboard uh, by using riders kind of thing. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about things that are going into the patient, and I, I just want to clarify. So we have a normotensive or a hypotensive child. If it, the child is normotensive, we have now given a 10cc normal saline bolus, and that's running about over an hour. How many times can I repeat that? Well, I think you have to reassess your patient. I have to go uh, back to the bedside is what you're well, saying. Well, you probably shouldn't leave the bedside for some of these kids. <laughs> um, uh, they, they can, again, be very sick. They're, they probably are your sickest patient in your department at that time. Uh, again, it's and hard to say. they don't always say. look that way. Right. Again, they're sitting quietly in their in their mom's arm. Right, right. If they're not crying, but they're not, fine. No, quote, unquote, I, yeah. lethargic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, I think uh, frequent reassessment, not only of them from a clinical standpoint, heart rate, mental status, urine output, uh, but also their labs, their trending labs. So one of the practical things to think about is how are you going to do all this? Well, a second IV might be very helpful. Uh, putting in a capped IV so you can draw samples off with as little stress to the patient as possible. Uh, you've got just a conduit that you can draw off labs without making it this long, you know, painful ordeal for the patient, for their family, and get you the lab results that you're looking for in a timely fashion. I encourage you to use bedside testing as much as you can. But I, I hear what you're saying, Alex, you know, there's a lot going on. And I think that's where a guideline can help you, can help the nurses at the bedside, the phlebotomists, uh, to say, you know, th this, is, this is how often we want these lab tests. These are going to be our next steps. So a bit of advanced planning, including that potential for a second IV site, yeah, as tough as that might be in some of these kids. Yeah. We've talked about the fluids. We've talked about electrolytes. I don't want to skip over insulin. Take me through when we should be giving insulin how we should give it, boluses versus infusion. So again, to avoid rapid changes in blood sugar, if you gave that child 10 cc's per kilo of fluids and you gave an insulin bolus, suddenly that high blood sugar might not remain elevated for very long, but you haven't really volume replaced, you haven't really reversed their acidosis, and now you're kind of catching up with low blood sugars and other things that you have to uh, address. So slow but sure, our guideline has been to avoid insulin boluses for the most part because, again, some children, especially those under five, are very sensitive to interventions. And so to give them that bolus uh, might be problematic. So an insulin infusion after the initial fluids and with labs that show persistent acidosis and the numbers that we talked about earlier would warrant uh, moving forward. For the younger child, you might start at a lower rate per kilogram. I mean, typically for an otherwise healthy school-aged child, you might start at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour of regular insulin, whereas in the kiddo under age 5, certainly the kiddo under age 2, you might be starting at a lower volume of insulin, knowing that they might react or drop their sugar more quickly to 0.05 units per kilo per hour of regular insulin. Not to get into too much detail, but just paying close attention to the rate of insulin infusion probably can be lower in the younger child. Yeah. Let's go back to our imaginary patient where an hour in they've gotten some fluids and 
Now they're, they're a little bit more sleepy and they look more comfortable. We've, we've gotten the numbers closer to the box and so we're, we're feeling like we've made huge progress. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? That's a great question. Uh, and I think you need to keep asking yourself that question throughout their time in the ER because improvement in numbers might not mean improvement in patient. So they may actually be showing signs of the development of cerebral edema. I'm glad you brought that up, Mark. I have to be honest, I know that we need to worry about cerebral edema, but I don't feel like I have a good picture in my mind of how to diagnose this. Alex, do you have any advice on that? In the, the practice guideline we have here at Mayo, I'm going to read through these. Would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you detect some of these. So uh, for diagnostic criteria, we have abnormal motor or verbal response to pain, decorticate or decerebrate posturing, cranial nerve palsy, abnormal respiratory pattern, sort of a neurogenic respiratory pattern. And then we have major and minor criteria. The major criteria include altered mental status, a sustained heart rate deceleration that we don't attribute to pumping them full of fluids, age inappropriate incontinence, and then we have the minor criteria, vomiting, headache, difficulty arousing from sleep, diastolic blood pressure greater than 90 millimeters of mercury, and age less than five. How do you put all these together to get to a diagnosis? You know, those are meant to be a tool or tools in your toolbox to help you decide if what you're seeing in front of you truly is cerebral edema or not. I think rarely you will find that. I think you will see improvement if you treat, and I think we'll be encouraged. But it's things to watch for. It's things for your team to be aware of. Hey, I'm going to be out of the room because I've got these other three patients to see. Please watch for these things and let me know if there's concern on your part that they're in evolution uh, because then we might need to do some other things. So they're, they're meant to be objective. They're not easy to do. Um, but the teenager who has incontinence in front of you as you're treating them, they're really not turning around. Ask their parents, he still seems confused to me, just like when we came in here. That's kind of all put together leads me to believe this is cerebral edema. Whether he had it when he showed up or not, we'll probably never know. But I think it's important to address that because that's the acute thing we need to intervene on. Kids are at higher risk for the development of cerebral edema when they're in DKA. It's the most common, you know, life-threatening complication uh, to pediatric DKA. We can talk more if you'd like about cause or effect. You know, there's, it's, it's really hard to tease out because when's time zero, when did their symptoms start? How long did it take them to get to care? Those kinds of things all bear on that diagnosis. But I think you're looking for changes, Alex, and just being attentive uh, to those different aspects of this, I think, can go a long way. Mark, what are some of the risks between one person with DKA and another that may predispose to developing cerebral edema? Do we have any sense of that? You know, I don't know that we do. Uh, I, I think uh, the child uh, new onset diabetes with DKA just kind of historically that they're at higher risk. The younger the child, the higher the risk for the development of cerebral edema. Part of that might be because we're not looking for it. And again, that's where those criteria are meant to kind of draw that out to say, did you think about this? Uh, I think those are the, the things that jump out to me most, uh, most obviously as risk factors, if you will. Yeah. I've heard some hallway debates about 
the volume of fluids and speed of fluid administration. Do you see them correlating at all with the development of cerebral edema? Well, that's that's really hard. Um, you know, objectively, studies, uh, they're kind of limited. I mean, you, you don't want that child to, in one arm of a study, get 10 times the amount of fluid that's expected or that's typically given, and this child gets, you know, 10% of that. You just can't do that study. You know, the, the one study that, that I'm aware of that w intended to look at this was the 2018 study by Dr. Cooperman and others from the PCARN uh, research group. And based on their study, they really didn't show any difference between types or volume of fluid, rates of fluid administration, but it was pretty tightly controlled, as studies should be. And so I don't think we really know about those outliers. It's Alex jumping in again. We've been talking a little bit about a paper, and this is a great opportunity to do a deeper dive. Here, we're talking about the clinical trial of fluid infusion rates for pediatric diabetic ketoacidosis by Nathan Cooperman and colleagues, representing the PCARN DKA fluid study group published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. The study conducted a 13-center randomized control trial looking at the rate of IV fluid administration on neurologic outcomes in children with DKA. Children were broken into one of four treatment groups, including normal saline, half-normal saline, and a rapid or slow infusion rate for each. The primary outcome was a decline in mental status as evaluated by GCS. Among almost 1,400 episodes of DKA, there was a decrease in GCS in only 48 cases, which represented 3.5% of cases, with clinically apparent brain injury in only 12 cases. They did not see a significant difference in the treatment groups with regards to the GCS decline, the magnitude of GCS decline, or with respect to the incidence of clinically apparent brain injury. The conclusion of the study was, quote, neither the rate of administration nor the sodium chloride content of IV fluids significantly influenced neurologic outcomes in children with DKA, end quote. Something important to take away from the study, however, is that this is really not saying that we should flood patients with IV fluids. All patients in the study received a standard fluid bolus of about 10 mLs per kilogram, and there were differences in the assumed fluid deficit between the groups of 10% body weight in the fast administration group versus 5% in the slow administration group. So this really spoke to the rate of IV infusions, but really doesn't represent aggressive bolusing, as Dr. Manabach was saying just now. All right, back to the interview. All I would say is that use a guideline that everyone that you're gonna be kind of working with agrees to, because uh, for instance, we had a six-year-old who came to us, referred at one point, and got three liters of fluid in about a four-hour period of time. And, uh, uh, you can't see faces in the room right now for those listening, but cringes are being you know, felt. But what is too much? We don't know. Three liters is too much. Well, he did have cerebral edema. Was that the cause of his cerebral edema? We'll probably never know. But to avoid those extremes, I think, is the take-home message I would like to send in that if your guideline says stick within these parameters as much as you can with reassessment and looking at labs, I think that's the important thing to, to pay attention to, all of those different factors. Um, you know, in retrospect, others might, you know, wonder if you gave too much fluid or not enough insulin or didn't get potassium started soon enough. Others on your team 
might have those same questions. Should we have done something differently? And then as a provider, as a person ordering that, you might wonder, gee, did I do the wrong thing for this child? You know, first do no harm. That's where the guideline I think can be helpful. Uh, not just to, you know, check boxes, right? Get everything just right. But to provide some confidence to yourself, to your team members, to the downstream provider that we thought about this and we made a decision based on these parameters to avoid that as much as possible, knowing that we can't prevent it 100% of the time. So let's say my patient is concerning me that they might have cerebral edema. What am I doing to confirm this diagnosis or take it off the table? You know, I, I think the knee-jerk reaction many times, just like we want to fix all the labs, is let's get an image. Let's get them to the scanner and find out. Again, if you look at uh, children with cerebral edema who respond to treatment, their initial scan may be normal or not show a, a lot of significant changes to make that diagnosis. So if clinically you have concern, assuming that they've gotten appropriate treatment, assuming you're paying attention to those signs and symptoms that Alex was referring to, I think treatment is what you should do. You should intervene and treat them, just like the severe head injured patient who comes in. You know, it's the same conversation. Do they need some type of osmolar agent to help them with the amount of brain swelling they have? It's the same type of conversation here. Uh, should you intervene or not? It's a clinical decision. Okay, jumping in after the interview again on this one. I am imagining seeing a child with DKA and now they are altered and how difficult it may be for some to initiate therapy without getting a picture first. I know that it would be hard for me. There was a study done by Dr. Soto Rivera in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2017 where they performed a retrospective chart review study at a tertiary care children's hospital over a six-year time period. During that time, 686 patients with DKA under 26 years of age were enrolled, so technically some were young adults. Of this group, 96 had documented altered mental status. The altered mental status group were slightly younger, 12 versus 13 in the non-altered group. They were also more acidotic, 7.04 versus 7.19, and they had higher serum osmolalities, 328 versus 315 milliosms per kilogram. Of the 96 who were altered, 60 had head CTs. Only 16 of these head CTs were abnormal. 44 were normal. So right there, very few kids with clinical findings of cerebral edema also had abnormal CTs of their head. The study group went on to look at this a different way. They looked at which patients received treatment for cerebral edema, and of that group, what were their head CT results? So there were 23 patients who had both treatment for cerebral edema as well as head CTs, and only half of them had abnormal head CTs. The other half did not. Interestingly, for the 11 admissions that had head CTs before cerebral edema treatment was initiated, there was a median two-hour delay between the CT and the initiation of treatment. These authors concluded as such that there was no evidence that the CT improved the decision-making by the clinicians on who had the diagnosis of cerebral edema and who to treat for cerebral edema. They also comment on the possibility of creating a significant delay to treatment by obtaining a head CT. 
Similar conclusions were found by Dr. Wilkinson and her study group in their more recent 2022 study, which was also a retrospective chart review study published in the Journal of Pediatric Endocrinology and Metabolism. Basically, the CT did not contribute meaningfully to the patients with cerebral edema receiving treatment. These are both retrospective study designs and have the inherent flaws associated with them. Also, it's not clear that these conclusions apply to adults who have much lower rate of cerebral edema and who have higher rates of other causes of altered mental status and traumatic injuries. So, in case you're like me and would be hesitant to hold off on imaging, maybe this may help to strengthen Mark's recommendation or highlight the potential problems that CT could cause. Okay, I'm dropping you back into the interview as we talk about treatment. And by the treatment, we're talking about, I'm assuming, mannitol, hypertonic saline. Correct. Anything right. else? Uh, you know, those are the common things that would be used acutely. Uh, I grew up in an era where mannitol was the, you know, reach for that during my training on the inpatient end of pediatrics. Mannitol was at the bedside with instructions to give with these parameters in mind. Manitol has, uh, you know, got a longer track record, but it has its challenges, right? It is an osmotic agent. So as much as you're trying to catch up with fluids, you're going to make the child diurese when you give the manitol. Now what do you do with their fluids? You have to account for that somehow. So hypertonic saline, that's been thought to be potentially uh, as effective with fewer side effects or fewer challenges to address after you've given it. Uh, so I think not a whole lot of studies out there about the use of hypertonic saline for this cerebral edema, but of those that are out there, there's no reason to think that you can't use hypertonic saline. So if you have it available, by all means, I, I think that's probably where I would lean towards intervening. Even though our guideline says use mannitol, maybe the next iteration of our guideline will lean more towards hypertonic saline than mannitol. A very specific question. If we have a, a patient with known type 1 diabetes who comes in with an insulin pump, what do we do with that while we're, while we're getting all this other stuff started? That's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up, Alex. I, I think sometimes that's often in a teenage patient who we believe is cognitively and developmentally able to handle management of their diabetes through the use of an insulin pump. There's some debate about which patient really does qualify for the use of an insulin pump. I've seen some five and six-year-olds that do beautifully with it. I've seen some 16 and 17-year-olds that don't do well with it at all. Uh, so kind of goes against my thinking. But knowing what's the trigger, as you mentioned earlier, what could be the thing that pushed them over the edge, if they do have an insulin pump in place, I think the site itself, the pump, you know, just like we talk about equipment failure as potentially being the issue for other things, that present acutely. It's kind of I, like a dopes. Kind of kind of like a dopes mnemonic, right? Yeah. So I think getting rid of that pump as one of the factors is important. Uh, also, if you might end up starting an insulin infusion and they have their pump running. We forget that. So it's important that we eliminate and try to, as much as we can, control for the changes we're trying to make. So I would, uh, I would uh, just disconnect the insulin pump uh, upon arrival to the ER as much as we can. At our institution, I learned this, uh, at least in the adult world, I don't know if it applies to pediatrics, but we're not supposed to touch the pump. Uh, the patient or family can do it, and then the endocrine fellow is allowed to do it, even in hypoglycemic emergencies for adults. Did you know this, Alex? I didn't. 
what was shared with me after there was a, a bad incident early in my career uh, was that patients in the adult world, at least, who have pumps are prone to develop DKA within a matter of hours after the pump goes off. And uh, so the instance I learned this, I had shut off the pump. And then later I had a patient where I did not shut off the pump. We supported their glycemic needs supplementally while the endocrine fellow came to the ED in the middle of the night. They shut off the pump and the patient did develop DK within four hours. I was blown away by how fast that happened. You know, I, I will admit I'll defer to a parent uh, or the patient. Um, it, uh, my experience has been that, that there's a kink in the pump or the site hasn't been changed for several weeks. And it's only during conversations with everyone in the room that we realize this. And then we wonder, why did they go into DK? So I, I think it could be cause of the issue, suddenly stopping it could trigger something. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. But I think a conscious decision about what to do with it is important and account for what are we doing with our insulin overall. And certainly institutional specific guidance, of course. And the times I've wanted to shut it off were in hypoglycemic crises rather than what we're talking about now. But the parents always know. I, if this is one of those things that the parent always says, I walk in there and they say, I think something's off with the pump. I can't put my finger on it, but we did what we did before. The pump's not working. Well, and again, that's, a, that's another great thing to, to bring up, Alex, is, you know, what has the patient, what has the family done with insulin prior to arrival if they're a known diabetic on insulin. They may have already been in contact with, you know, the endocrinologist over the phone and tried to troubleshoot numbers and figure it out. So where are we in the balance of insulin over the course of the day and where are, are, where are the numbers tracking before they show up? So we have this patient who has an elevated blood sugar and while we're gonna get all of these labs cooking, what what is the the perfect Man and Bach physical exam. Well, uh, how do I walk out and there isn't something that you say, but Alex, did you look here? How do I get to that spot? Well, I think, uh, again, examining children, especially young kids, uh, sometimes teenagers that really aren't interested in being examined, uh, we'll kind of <laughs> maybe put them all, all together that way. Appropriately combative to physical exam. Well, you know, <laughs> cooperation, I guess, is what we're yeah. looking at. Can they cooperate with an exam as we would think of with an adult, head to toe, do as we ask, all that kind of thing. I think understanding that it might take more than one attempt. So as we've talked about reassessing these children over the course of their time of treatment, it might mean that gee, I forgot to examine their ears and their throat because it didn't seem to be that important initially because they were altered. And I got a finger stick glucose and it was high. And then we started ordering things. And then you lose track of doing any part of the exam because you get caught up into the orders and you know, lab and trouble with IV. And so at some point, a complete head to toe exam needs to happen. Now that could be your exam along with the medical student or the resident, and we all together have come up with the idea that, yeah, we've got our bases covered here. Not everyone needs to you know, force a tongue depressor in the back of the child's throat to look at for evidence of pharyngitis as a potential concomitant infection or trigger. But I think we all need to have a sense that we've done a complete exam to look for what we're looking for. In addition, repeat exams 
that we've talked about to evaluate for cerebral edema is, I think, a shared goal uh, of all the providers at the bedside, whether that's nursing staff looking at vital signs or, hey, he's, he's looking better now. When you're not in the room, he's interacting and talking with his mom and dad. Hey, thanks for letting me know. That's encouraging. Uh, I'm less likely to then reach for my mannitol because when I go back in the room, the child's asleep in their parents' arms. Uh, what does that mean? So I think it's, I don't want to say it takes a whole village to examine a child. That, that might be overstating it. But I think being deliberate to do that exam is important. And if you think about, you know, we mentioned appendicitis earlier as a potential trigger for DK. How would you find that, again, in the young child? That's repeated exams of their belly, too. Remember, we haven't talked about lab specifics, but most of these children are going to show up with a white count of, you know, more than 20,000 because of the stress of what they've been through. So white blood cells are not gonna probably help us very much to decide which child has appendicitis and which one doesn't in the setting of DKA. So that physical exam over time is really important. And if you can't really kind of put the issue to rest from a physical exam standpoint, then maybe you do need to go on to the imaging, the ultrasound and or CT uh, for finding appendicitis in the young child, which is another podcast, I think, right? That's another one we can do. Um, so I, I think limitation of labs and what they can tell us, limitations of what the physical exam just requires, you know, just attention to, 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 to the entire child over time. Yeah. Fast forwarding a little bit, we've talked about making the diagnosis, educating the family, helping our team be the most attentive, the physical exam to look for triggers, watching for cerebral edema, initiating the first hour treatments, secondary and tertiary treatments. I'm thinking about some of the situations that our listeners may be in where they're boarding these patients for a long time. Take us to the other side. When do we know that DKA has resolved? And when can the patient go home? Do they ever go home right from an emergency department? You know, I don't have much personal experience with discharge from the emergency department. Um, some institutions actually do. More and more, I think, because of cost savings, restrictions on the inpatient side, just potential problems that develop while you're in the hospital, there's thought that if you can get these children well enough that they could go home as long as they have very close follow with PEDS endocrinology. So if you do have some type of outpatient plan in place, I think it needs to be clearly outlined as to what those parameters are with engagement and buy-in from someone who will follow up in a very prompt way. Because remember, you have a lot of parents' questions that are unanswered. What are we going to, when can we feed them? What do we feed them? All those things typically have been addressed through an inpatient stay. Many children, depending on their age and how significantly ill they are, it's three to four days in the hospital regulate their sugar, get them on an insulin regimen that makes sense. And during that three to four day stay, parents' questions are being answered. They meet with dietitians as well to talk about exchanges, to figure out what to do on sick days. What will we do when they do develop a true viral illness like their other children? They develop a fever, that's an increased metabolic demand on them. How will they address, you know, address that? So if you're going to send them home, I think it needs to be clearly identified what criteria you use for safe discharge and then who's going to follow up and when specifically. 
This might vary depending on your location of practice. If they're quite far from a pediatric center, I'm not sure that that's going to work for the family's sake as well as the child. If it's a Friday evening um, or a Memorial Day weekend, uh, I, I don't know that the same approach can be taken because you don't want these kids to slip through the cracks, especially the young patient, uh, very important. Uh, the patient, the known diabetic who has, quote, DKA yet again, this is their third or fourth time around, maybe what we've tried in the past hasn't worked. This outpatient approach, a conversation again, does inpatient care make sense this time around? Uh, so a lot of variables there that I think need to be addressed before you can say, yep, you're ready to go home. Maybe it's not sending the patient home, but instead of the ICU going to the floor, for example, what is our marker for when DKA has been resolved? Is it the gap? Is it the bicarb? What are we looking at? Again, I think it depends on your guideline and your institution, where people are comfortable saying what can go on where. Uh, in our institution, any child on an insulin infusion cannot be cared for cared for on our general pediatric floor. They must go to the ICU. So if, if one of the criteria objectively is no need for insulin infusion or no need for or no concern for the development of cerebral edema uh, and or a time frame of the real young child who's at risk for that development of cerebral edema needs to show improvement over 24 hours. Maybe that's an ICU setting to begin with and then transition to the floor. Um, but again, it, it, it really has to be, I think, well thought out um, for all the people that might be involved in caring for that child. So overall, we've talked about a lot of pediatric-specific approaches. Think, how do these seem different than working through a night shift where you have an adult patient? Yeah, you know, this was a great opportunity to take a, a look and compare pediatric DKA and adult DKA. And a couple of take-homes for me, Alex, are that, first, the rate of cerebral edema is much higher in pediatrics. Some of the literature I found had it between 0.5 and essentially 1% of pediatric DKA patients can develop uh, cerebral edema, whereas adults, it's 0.03%, so we're talking much less. Also, I think with kids, what, one of the big take-homes I've gathered from this conversation is that we should have a maybe fluid first and then reassess strategy, and even that fluids just should be gentle resuscitation rather than the full court press that I feel like we do on most most adults. Now, with adult DKA, at least our institutional guideline when I looked, there's an attention to fluids and potassium up front, but simultaneously the initiation of insulin infusion once we know that potassium result, which I think is very different than the management of pediatric DKA, at least in our institution. Of course, the vital signs are always different. We didn't get into that much in this podcast, but I think I'm always taking a moment to think about the age of the patient and their vital signs. And then I think adding on the growth chart, as we talked about, um, is really an important one that I have not been doing. And then the hydration goals. In adults, our institutional protocol says to resuscitate until they're no longer dehydrated whereas the pediatric ones are very meticulous about how much fluid in a weight-based fashion over what period of time, and I think probably has to 
has a relationship with the rate of cerebral edema, but that's another take home for me. Anything else that I left out, Alex, from your end? No, I think you you answered a lot of my questions. I, I frequently share with the residents the most important thing we're going to get besides our bedside exam is not not just the point of care glucose, but the, the VPG. That's going to give us the acidosis, the sodium, and the potassium. And that's really what's going to move us from we're worried about something to we can start intervening. Mark, from that summary, did I hit the, the key points from a pediatric perspective pretty well? I think you did, Vank. I think you've captured things pretty well. Just some final thoughts. I mentioned the vomiting child uh, as being a, a bit scary or a lot of potential diagnoses. I think getting a finger stick glucose goes a long way. If you're not sure, it's easy to do. You might say, I don't want to inflict harm, but I, I'd rather know if they're high or low to decide if I need to go down either supplementation with glucose or dextrose, or is it early DK or not to have that kind of discussion or thought uh, up front rather than wait for the second or third ER visit to get to the diagnosis. So doing finger stick glucoses, grabbing a urine, you know, just a random urine and dipping it to look for ketones and glucose, you might really help a patient and the family a, a lot sooner to get to the diagnosis than others might have. Oh, he's just got the stomach flu. He's okay, as I mentioned earlier. Just be paying close attention to these different aspects of care, the fluids, the insulin, potassium replacement, goes a long way to, I think, make everyone be comfortable and say we've done our best to care for this patient. And then making time to talk to the family, just answering their questions as best you can, lead them as best you can to where they're headed with a lot of these things uh, will go a long, long way. And I think everybody will sleep better at night uh, with that approach. So just to summarize, we've talked about a lot of different things. So what I'm taking away is that these patients may be seen in multiple different locations before a final diagnosis is made. They can be seen by their primary physician or provider's office, an urgent care, at least a single ED visit, sometimes multiple ED visits. Also, they may delay presentation to a clinical setting. And these all put us behind the eight ball in getting them the right care as soon as possible. We should be very thoughtful and attentive when we see isolated vomiting in kids, as DKA is one of many things that could be dangerous hiding in that clinical situation. The growth chart is important, and we should add it to our evaluation kind of like a vital sign. We should be on the lookout for, obviously, the classic presentations like polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, weight loss, but also, as I mentioned, isolated vomiting or even dehydration alone, altered mental status, all of these could be very important clues to the diagnosis or even cerebral edema. And cerebral edema is essentially the biggest danger that hides within this and the management. As a result, we want to be thoughtful with our fluid administration, uh, being slow to resuscitate these patients because this condition didn't develop right away. And in pediatrics, at least in our institution, we're talking about fluids first, electrolytes next, and then insulin potentially after that, with an infusion being the optimal way of delivering the insulin, all the while being thoughtful to recheck both the physical examination, call Alex if you need somebody to do that, and then also rechecking the labs. When talking about the labs, the exact numbers for a diagnosis might vary by institution, but in general, we're talking about a glucose that's in the 250 to 300 range, a pH that is about 7.25 or lower, bicarb 15 or lower, beta-hydroxybutyrate 
three and a half, three point eight millimoles per deciliter in that range, or moderate to large ketonuria. Also, we should take time after we've made these diagnoses to reframe the situation for the parents of the patients as we understand that they're probably thinking about a whole bunch of future dangers and we need to bring them back to the present. If we're thinking about cerebral edema, we need to be thinking about treatment first rather than imaging first. And although it would be very unlikely if there was a situation where any of our listeners are trying to create outpatient plans right out of the ED, they should make sure that They've thought about all the logistics of weekends and holidays, making sure that this is an agreed-upon practice by all the folks who would touch that situation and being very, very careful about it. And that just speaks to the importance of having coordinated care, creating guidelines prospectively if possible. Even though they take a lot of time, they can be exceptionally helpful um, to have everybody on board and creating a standard view of how we might approach these patients. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. We really appreciate your time. And I know that we're going to be better at this the next time we see a pediatric patient with DK or diabetes. And thank you to all the listeners for your time and attention. As always, we ask if you could, please like, follow, and comment on our show on whatever podcasting platform you use. Come back in the middle of the month. We'll have a Grand Rounds episode and uh, have a wonderful summer as it's beginning for most people. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.